Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Melissa Harris, and welcome back to our National Cancer Act 50th Anniversary Commemoration Miniseries. For this fifth part in our miniseries, we wanted to discuss the importance of childhood cancer in the overall history of cancer research development, as well as the unique challenges and work being done to address childhood cancer. The arc of history around childhood cancer is really central to how we got to the National Cancer Act in 1971, as well as the persistence of cancer treatment, research, and development in the decades since. If you recall, in the first episode of this miniseries, we discussed how Boston Children's Hospital pathologist Dr. Sidney Farber was a key early figure in the push to pass legislative provisions included in the National Cancer Act. He studied childhood cancers like leukemia in the 1950s, and with the pioneering work that he and other doctors conducted in the years leading up to 1971, we got to the National Cancer Act. There's a lot to unpack here, but in short, the early collaboration and spirit of these doctors set a foundation for the way we approach childhood cancers and even other forms of cancer, which you'll hear more about from the National Cancer Institute's Associate Branch Chief for Pediatric Oncology, Dr. Malcolm Smith. Childhood cancer clinical research really is all about collaboration and cooperation, and it's been that way since the beginning of the modern treatment era in the 1950s. In the early 1950s, late 1940s, there were giants of cancer research like Dr. Sidney Farber in Boston, who identified that methotrexate as a single agent was able to induce remissions in children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL. That was the first time that had ever been done. Researchers at Burroughs Welcome, George Hitchings and Gertrude Elian, identified that 6-mercaptopurine was also was an anti-leukemia agent. Uh, and Dr. Virginal at Sloan Kettering showed that 6-mercaptopurine could also induce remissions in children with ALL. But the next step after that, these remissions were short, they were brief, but and they weren't curative. And so how to do better than that? And they needed to do clinical trials that would have larger numbers of patients. And so in 1955, uh, that would be well over 60 years ago, nearly 70 years now, uh, the NCI provided funds to, to conduct clinical trials by bringing groups of institutions together to work together, to cooperate, to collaborate. These groups conducted several clinical trials over time, iterating on findings and discovering that multi-agent treatments were more effective than single-agent solutions, as well as the fact that longer treatments worked better than shorter treatments. These collaborative groups even expanded beyond the United States and included Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and parts of Europe. The culmination of this work has led us to where we are today, when on average about 84% of children and 85% of adolescents diagnosed with cancer survive at least five years. But even with that brief look into the progress of research into childhood cancer, there are still many variables that make childhood cancer uniquely difficult to study, understand, and overcome compared to other cancers. For one, if you remember, cancer is a disease that is often age-related. As you get older, you increase your risk of encountering cancer between environmental factors and the damage of our cells over time. Childhood cancer, however, is different. 
Even though childhood cancers are relatively rare, with about 10,600 new cases in the U.S. per year compared to 1.5 million new cases of cancer in adults per year, there are unique factors that make children prone to cancer. For one, children with cancer usually encounter leukemia and blood cancers, brain cancer, neuroblastoma, cancers of the nervous system, bones, and more. These are usually tissue-related and nowhere near as common in adults. That's just one element. Dr. Brigitte Biedermann, NCI's pediatric oncology branch chief, broke down more of the differences between childhood and adult cancers for us. In children, leukemia, we talked about this already, and lymphoma account for nearly 50% of the cancers. Brain tumors are very frequent as well, and these are much less frequent in adult patients. Some tumors are almost only seen in children, and these are embryonal tumors that arise from immature fetal tissues, such as the tumor called neuroblastoma, retinoblastoma, or rhabdomyosarcoma. And then in contrast, adult patients develop carcinomas, and these are tumors that arise either from the skin on the outside or from the lining of internal organs. And these tumors, again, we believe arise through a series of genetic changes, environmental factors, carcinogens such as smoking. And this accounts for approximately 75% of adult cancers, but very infrequently in children. Another differentiating factor between childhood and adult cancers is that in adult cancers, tumors accumulate multiple genetic changes or mutations, and these occur much less frequently in childhood cancers. Dr. Wiedemann explained that over the past decade, we've learned a lot about genomic and genetic changes in pediatric cancers and how usual cancer trends in these areas are unique for children compared to adults. The cancer genomics overall have many fewer genetic changes in kids in comparison to adults. However, rather than mutations that we observe in the DNA in adult cancers, in pediatric cancers, there are changes that we call epigenetic changes. Epigenetics is the study of how cells control gene activity without changing the DNA sequence. And epigenetic changes or modifications to the DNA can turn genes on or off. And this is relatively new findings that in kids, the changes may not be in the DNA directly, but maybe epigenetic changes that drive tumors. And as one example that is striking, there's an epigenetic change in the tumor where we've made no progress or very little progress today called diffuse midline glioma, a brain tumor that occurs in very young children. And by being able to identify these changes, I hope that we will be able to not only use them for diagnosis or for classification of tumors, but for the development of more effective treatments. Thus, in comparison to adult cancers, you could say childhood cancer can be viewed more as a developmental disorder of immature tissue. Amid these trends in the emergence of cancer in children, from the lesser role that environmental factors play to the increased role of abnormalities in development. NCI has found that children who have cancer often have genetic predispositions that make them vulnerable in the first place. Some children are born with a gene mutation that increases their risk of cancer. Probably the best guess now that that's about 
uh, or a little less than 10% of children with a cancer diagnosis have a gene mutation that, that led to them developing the cancer. These gene mutations may be ones that are new in the child, or they may be ones that the child inherited from one or both of their parents. And one example of that is retinoblastoma, a cancer of the eye. And about one-fourth to one-third of cases of retinoblastoma are cases of the heritable form. And that means the child has a gene mutation uh, throughout their body and could potentially pass uh, that mutation on to a child. So even though doctors Smith and Biederman told me that there are no routine screenings for cancers in children, there are fortunately some steps that families can take if they know that there is a genetic predisposition that can make their children more at risk for childhood cancers. Dr. Smith said that based on the predisposition, families and their children can work with cancer geneticists to identify if there is an appropriate screening program that they can pursue. Dr. Wiedemann gave some examples. There are some familial inherited cancers where screening is performed, such as Lefamini syndrome, which is probably the most frequent cancer predisposition in children, with approximately 1% of all childhood cancers being associated with TP53 mutations. These patients that have a TP53 germline mutation are at higher risk for developing a number of cancers such as adrenocortical carcinoma, choroid plexus carcinoma, anaplastic rhabdomyosarcoma, medulloblastoma, osteosarcoma, and also leukemia. A lot of research has been conducted by many investigators across the world, but particularly also at the National Cancer Institute. And at this point, there are early cancer diagnosis through surveillance, including whole body MRI to early detect tumors, and which is recommended also for children and has shown to enable early tumor detection and also as a result of the early tumor detection decrease the mortality of these tumors. Other examples of where we do surveillance um, examinations and screening is hereditary retinoblastoma, a tumor that develops in the eye, some hereditary kidney cancers. And our group in the pediatric oncology branch has an effort on hereditary medullary thyroid cancers, where prophylactic surgical excision of the thyroid, thyroidectomy, is recommended in infancy in some patients because there is such a high risk of developing thyroid cancer. Based on studies that comprehensively analyze these um, changes, as I already mentioned, about 10% of pediatric patients have a genetic tumor predisposition. And I believe there will be a lot of research conducted in the future to see how we can follow these patients and how we can potentially diagnose these cancers earlier or potentially even prevent these cancers. Speaking of research, there are some promising treatment options for certain childhood cancers, as well as barriers that make treating other childhood cancers difficult. When it comes to the basics of treatment, treatment for childhood cancers are similar to those for adults. These can include surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy, but because of the various developmental stages of cancers in children, there are challenges in getting the right combination of treatment options. The treatments really depend on the type of cancer that you have. And so, for example, 
treatment for a child with ALL or acute lymphoblastic leukemia is going to be very different from a child who has neuroblastoma, and that's going to be different from a child who has hepatoblastoma or osteosarcoma. You know, there are some drugs that work great for ALL, uh, but they don't work for neuroblastoma or osteosarcoma and vice versa. And so, you know, the, the, the treatments that are very much based on the diagnosis of the child, chemotherapy is often used, radiation uh, is used for some cancers, radiation therapy. Uh, it's rarely used now for ALL, but for some solid tumors like the rhabdomyosarcoma, the muscle tumors, or brain cancers and others, uh, it's more commonly used. Surgery is a critical part of standard care for most solid tumors, uh, but it's not for leukemias. And then immunotherapy is becoming a standard part of care for a few childhood cancers, such as neuroblastoma, Burkitt lymphoma, uh, and ALL after its first relapse. And, but the treatments are very uh, specific for the type of cancer and, and, and often for the molecular characteristics of the cancer. Even though treatment can be tricky, NCI and researchers have made a ton of progress that has led to survival rates in childhood cancer to exceed 90%. And for the pediatric cancers that are still harder to successfully treat, this is a key focus area that NCI's pediatric oncology leaders are trying to address. There are cancers that remain very difficult to treat. Diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, or DIPG, a type of brain cancer. Glioblastoma, another type of brain cancer. The sarcomas that have become metastatic, that have spread throughout the body, all of these are very challenging to treat. And the survival rates for children with these uh, cancers is, is much lower, sometimes even less than 10%. And so while we are glad that we've been able to identify effective treatments for many types of childhood cancers, there are other types of childhood cancers for which uh, the treatments that we have today are woefully inadequate and for which new discoveries about how to better treat these children are really desperately needed. But just because these cancers are difficult to treat doesn't mean that it's impossible. Just as NCI is looking to apply some new treatment innovations across the adult cancer space, they are doing the same for children. For instance, a nascent immunotherapy option called immune checkpoint inhibitors are more successful in adults than children as of now. But NCI is hoping to make this, as well as precision medicine applications, more effective in treatment for children. The immune checkpoint inhibitors are active in tumors that have accumulated a large number of genetic changes, mutations, and this may be one of the reasons why they don't work nearly as well in pediatric tumors that very infrequently have accumulated a number of mutations. And this is an important area of research in the children's cancer research community to investigate how we can make pediatric tumors more responsive to immunotherapy, including these new immune checkpoint inhibitors. This is, I think, a nice example of where responses are different. There's also new treatments called molecularly targeted agents, precision therapy, drugs that target specific genomic alterations in tumors. And there, it appears that tumors respond similarly 
like for example, an adult cancer that has a, an, an ALK mutation may respond to a drug that blocks this ALK mutation in a very similar way to a pediatric tumor that has an identical mutation. Dr. Wiedemann also noted that since almost all children with cancer are treated or work with children's oncology group institutions, almost all children with cancer enroll in clinical trials. This gives cancer researchers a lot of insight into almost every instance of cancer in children, whereas only a minority of adults with cancer enroll in clinical trials. This system is really helpful for understanding unique aspects of childhood cancer, from the very rare cancers that appear in children to how to properly treat children when they're at different stages of growth and development. We define rare cancer as um, less than 150 cases per million per year. So all childhood cancers are actually rare, but very rare pediatric cancers we define as less than two per million per year, which applies to approximately 11% of all pediatric cancers. And I think that definitely is a hurdle when we develop clinical trials for some of the very, very rare tumors. Another important aspect is that children are growing, and obviously treatments can negatively impact um, the growth of children. And I come come back to this. Our um, former acting NCI director, Doug Lowy, once said, every tumor is rare. And I would attest to that. If we really come down to a, a, like a big picture view, every tumor and every human is different. And ultimately, when we have better ways to treat tumors and understand them, we will probably recognize that indeed every tumor has their own signatures and maybe down the road their own treatment. One important effort how the NCI has helped us um, learn and study about rare tumors better is that we work with advocacy and with foundations uh, that help us enroll patients on clinical trials. And this includes, for example, the Cordoma Foundation that uh, brings us patients with a very rare pediatric tumor called Cordoma, where we only see 30 or 40 per year. There are other advances that NCI and the overall medical research community have made, both recently and in the past few decades, to continue pushing the ball forward in understanding and improving outcomes for childhood cancers. For one, Dr. Smith said that the genomic revolution in cancer research has made an important impact in the past 10 to 15 years for childhood cancers, especially to help lead NCI to advance targeted therapy. We now know that there are types of leukemia, for example, the pH positive ALL, which is a type of leukemia that is has the same gene fusion or a very similar gene fusion as that that's for chronic myeloid leukemia in adults. And so the same targeted therapy that works for adults with CML will also work for children with pH positive ALL. And an important advance was taking a drug for CML, using it with standard chemotherapy for children with pH positive ALL, and seeing this type of ALL that you know, in 20 years ago, had a, a, a very poor prognosis, now have a, a much better outcome with survival rates now approaching 80%. And so targeted therapy has been one important advance. We know that there are types of low-grade gliomas that have 
gene fusions that we can treat with specific targeted agents. There are types of sarcomas and brain cancers that have gene fusions and a gene called the intract genes. There are drugs that inhibit the activity of these intract gene products, and these drugs are highly effective for children that have these gene fusions. And so targeted therapy has been uh, an important advance. Many of these current and future aiming goals in the therapy and treatment space are being led by the Children's Oncology Group, which is a cooperative group of clinical trials that looks to bring novel therapies, treatments, and solutions to children with cancer. This group, which Dr. Wiedemann highlighted, really captures that spirit of collaboration in the childhood cancer space that we talked about earlier, is driving forward precision and targeted therapies. The Children's Oncology Group is embracing precision therapy approaches. They completed recently the COG match trial, where children that had specific genetic changes would match to a specific treatment that can target this genetic change. And this trial was very successful and identified that actually many patients do have a change that can be targeted with a molecularly targeted therapy. After this trial, where kids received a single agent for the treatment of their tumor, the COG is now developing the COMBO match trial, and this is all supported work by the National Cancer Institute. And here the goal is to rationally combine molecularly targeted agents to hopefully identify more active therapies for children with cancer. Think back of you know the 50s where it was identified that we need to combine therapies. I hope there's a good chance by effectively combining molecularly targeted therapies will also have more activity in these patients. Beyond the treatment space, NCI is also looking to reduce complications or secondhand cancers that can occur with radiation and other current therapies that children with cancer can endure. Another really important area is increased research to increase the quality of survivorship by reducing the long-term sequelae of cancer. And one of the most important ways we can do that is by in our clinical trials that are beginning now, trying to modify treatment so that we minimize the long-term sequelae of treatment. And so uh, a number of the trials that are beginning now or have begun in the recent and the past few years uh, are doing things like reducing uh, or eliminating radiation therapy so that the risk of second cancers that might happen as a result of radiation therapy, that risk is reduced. There are chemotherapy treatments that reduce fertility, and so modifying the treatments to use less of those agents or alternatives is another uh, approach that's being uh, taken. There are drugs that cause cardiac toxicity, and broadly applying agents that are able to reduce the risk of cardiac toxicity, the agents that can prevent cardiac toxicity when given with these cardiac toxic drugs, is one area reducing the use of these cardiac toxic drugs so that children will have less risk of uh, cardiac long-term heart effects as they get older, and then tailoring the treatment to the cancer. We want to give enough treatment to cure, but not more than is needed. And so this modifying, de developing the treatment regimens so that they are just enough for cure and not extra. 
Amid these many research efforts, NCI is looking to take advantage of all the data in the research space around pediatric cancers with a new Childhood Cancer Data Initiative. This effort began two years ago and has the goal of learning from every child with cancer and to also benefit every child with cancer. The data initiative does this by connecting data, collecting data from child cancer patients, clinical trials, cancer registries, and more, so that NCI and the research community can learn more about childhood cancers, including some of the rare pediatric cancers. With this exciting new data effort in mind, NCI is also hoping to leverage a lot of the new bioinformatic technologies that the biomedical technology and research community have been developing, as well as other emerging technologies to really take data and progress in cancer to the next level. I want to mention bioinformatic approaches and artificial intelligence to advance the analysis of the vast number of data that we collect from genomic and clinical and other data that hopefully will allow us to better analyze tumors and develop treatment strategies specifically directed to individual tumors. So there are early efforts within uh, the NCI and the Center for Cancer Research to apply this artificial intelligence to pediatric and to adult tumors. You had asked earlier about epigenetics, meaning changes not caused from the DNA, which appear to be very important for pediatric tumors. And I hope we will find mechanisms to epigenetically target tumors where this is important. With the knowledge of tumor predisposition, genetic tumor predisposition, I do hope that we will develop better strategies for surveillance and potentially down the road prevention of other cancer predisposition syndromes other than the ones that I already mentioned earlier. I think ultimately, really, our goal will be that every child will benefit from the tools, the diagnostic tools and the therapeutic means that we have today and that we can tailor the therapy so that children receive exactly the amount of treatment that they need and not more so that we can avoid toxicity. I want to emphasize again the importance that childhood cancer has had across the cancer research space over time. Early advocacy to combat childhood cancer helped the movement in creating the National Cancer Act. So it's an important time amid the commemoration of the 50-year anniversary of the act to spotlight the progress in childhood cancer. Throughout this mini-series, we have discussed how innovation, data, and technology have grown alongside the progress in the fight against cancer. In next month's episode, leading cancer officials will discuss how the evolution of technological innovation at NCI has made a difference in combating cancer. With that in mind, thank you so much for tuning in today, and I can't wait to continue sharing NCI's arc of progress in the cancer research space. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris and Adam Patterson. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.